Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by our news editor, Nick Bostock, to talk about the latest news from general practice. Coming up, we're talking about safe working limits and the number of GPs we need in England to ensure doctors are working within safe levels. We're discussing some of the key debates from the UK LMC's conference that took place last week, including whether we should have SAS doctors in general practice and full GP pay restoration. And we're looking at the state of GP premises. Meanwhile, our good news stories this week is about how a PCN introduced a primary care transformation project that improved patient outcomes at the same time as delivering cost savings. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. First up, Nick, you wrote a really interesting story last week looking at safe working limits and the number of GPs we'd need in England to ensure doctors were able to work within those limits. Can you explain a bit more about this? Yeah, so what we found is that England's GP workforce is currently looking after around 13.3 million patients, more than it can safely manage. And that to bridge the gap, we'd need nearly 7,400 more GPs than we currently have. So 27% more GPs than the current workforce. The starting point for this is that there's a figure relating to the ratio of patients to GPs that's been quoted fairly widely by local medical committees, some NHS organisations, councils and others as a benchmark for safe working in general practice. And the figure they use is 1,800 patients per fully qualified full-time equivalent GP. So the idea is that that's broadly the number of patients one full-time GP can safely look after. But across England as a whole, there are currently 2,286 patients per fully qualified full-time equivalent GP. So GPs are on average looking after nearly 500 patients more than the suggested safe limit. And, And what this suggests is that if GPs actually stuck to the safe limit, if they registered only 1,800 patients each, about a fifth of the population of the country would be without a GP. So basically, our current GP workforce of 27,306 fully qualified full-time equivalent GPs is enough for a population of just over 49 million people based on this ratio. But the actual number of people registered with GP practices is more than 62 million, 62 and a half million, I think, something like that. And obviously, There's significant variation across the country. There are one or two integrated care board areas where numbers of registered patients per GP are close to this recommended level. Uh, But in other areas, GPs are looking after 50% more patients than they should be based on this ratio. And just to give a bit of extra background, the original source of the 1800 to 1 ratio isn't entirely clear, but it is fairly widely quoted and used by LMCs. And in fact, calculations based on the BMA safe working advice also bring you back to a similar figure. But we've obviously got way more pharmacists and allied health professionals working in general practice now. So does that change the numbers of patients that GPs should have around safe limits, do you think? Multidisciplinary teams are obviously an expanding feature of general practice. The additional roles reimbursement scheme and recruitment by practices themselves have brought a wider range of staff into general practice in recent years. It's worth mentioning here that any notional optimum number of patients per GP can only be a guideline. What you really need will vary to some extent depending on the population the practice serves and things like the rurality of the practice. But it's definitely a 
point worth considering, does bolstering the general practice workforce with these additional staff mean that fewer GPs are needed per X number of patients? Allied health professionals coming into general practice should be able to take some work off GPs, but it needs to be factored in too that GPs often need to supervise the work that they do. So it's not something that straightforwardly reduces doctors' workload. And alongside this, we also need to consider the population that general practice nationwide is caring for and how that is changing. Demand for appointments has increased. Complexity of care has increased. We reported earlier this year that numbers of older patients registered with GPs who consult more frequently are rising faster than the population as a whole. So although extra staff may help, there are limits to what they can do and the population is changing fast too. You've spoken to the RCGP and some LMC leaders about the findings. What did they have to say about this? LMCs I spoke to said that these figures show there are just too few GPs doing more work with less resource. And they pointed out that if doctors did stick to the safe level, if they capped registrations at that level, as I mentioned earlier, a huge proportion of the population would be without a GP. Uh, they said that this evidence around the shortfall of GPs in the country is reflected in the intense workload and pressure of GPs work under all the time. And the RCGP pointed to their polling that shows more than two thirds of GPs are worried that they can't deliver safe care anymore because of the pressure that they're under and this sort of mismatch between GP numbers and, and numbers of patients. And the college said it was one of the wonders of modern medicine that people are living for longer, often with multiple health conditions. But they pointed out that this means there is a greater need for the holistic care that GPs are experts in delivering, and therefore we need more GPs. We're going to come on to talk about some of the things that happened at the UK LMC's conference in a minute. But part of the reason you looked into this was because it linked into one of the motions that was up for debate at the conference, isn't it? What was that debate about and what happened with it? Yeah, that's right. So one of the motions debated at the conference called on the BMA to gather evidence around current pressures on general practice, essentially. Part of this was a call for evidence on numbers of practice closures, for example. But one part of the motion asked the BMA to extrapolate how many patients are now without a GP, assuming a recommended ratio of one whole-time equivalence to registered list size. And the LMC that put forward that motion confirmed that the ratio it's referring to is this figure we've been talking about, 1,800 patients per full-time GP. So we published our story on the morning that the UK LMC's conference started, it was the 18th of May, and that motion, I think, was supported in full at the conference. Before we move on, just a quick reminder that MIMS Learning Live is taking place in London on Friday the 9th of June. This free one-day event is organised by our colleagues on MIMS Learning. There'll be five streams providing CPD learning on topics including women's health, dermatology, cardiovascular medicine, respiratory care and much more. You can register for your free place and find out more information, including the full programme at mimslearninglive.com. Moving on, last week saw LMC representatives and others from across the UK come together for the UK LMC's conference. The UK conference is often a bit of an odd one because it has to discuss and debate issues that are relevant to general practice in all four UK countries. So it means some key policies and country-specific issues, which are often very important, are not really featured on the agenda because these need to remain in the national conferences. Anyway, bearing that in mind, there were still some interesting discussions that took place during the conference in London last week. Emma, you wrote about a motion debated at the conference around industrial action and restoration of GP pay. How did the vote on that motion go? 
Yeah, so this motion basically called for the BMA to take the same approach as junior doctors have done and push for full pay restoration for general practice. It also said that GPs needed to consider industrial action in order to achieve this. And the LMCs backed this overwhelmingly. So pushing for full pay restoration should now effectively become policy for the GP committees in each of the four UK countries. The debate was quite interesting because quite a few GPs got up and suggested that as independent contractors, GPs couldn't take industrial action. There seemed to be some real confusion, I think, about what industrial action means. And we've talked about this on the podcast before. And, and, you know, it doesn't have to mean strike action. There are a number of other options for GPs, including handed in undated resignation letters, 24-hour practice closures, those sort of things. But because of that sort of confusion, the acting chair of the GP committee in England, Dr. Kieran Sharrock, actually got up during the debate to make clear that the BMA has had legal advice confirming that independent contractors can take industrial action. He said the, the BMA will be sharing this advice and setting out how it believed GPs could take industrial action in the coming weeks. As we know, there's already been a lot of discussion about industrial action by GPs in England. And the GP committee in England has voted to ballot the profession on this if current talks between the government and the BMA about the GP contract do not prove fruitful over the next few weeks. So England's probably where I'd like to see anything on this first. But anyway, there was a lot of strong feeling on this at the LMC's conference, although there was a bit of disquiet from some about the wording of the motion. Some speakers argued they should have been debating resource restoration rather than pay restoration because what they're really talking about is general practice funding, which would cover all of the money you need to run a practice, including the salaries of all the staff and not just the GP partner's personal income. But um, as I said, the motion carried overwhelmingly with many speaking quite forcefully about the importance of restoring pay in terms of recruitment and retention of GPs, as well as recruitment and retention of other members of the practice team. It might be worth mentioning here that if GPs do go down this road, they will, I think, will have to be prepared for a long haul when it comes to industrial action and and pay restoration, particularly in England, given the junior doctors' experience with the current government. People will no doubt have seen that junior doctors have announced another three-day strike in June after the government offered them just a 5% increase for this year. Um, The Junior Doctors' Committee have said that the current talks, which have been going on for the past three weeks or so, were now unproductive, which means why they need to call industrial action. Perhaps most worryingly, the BMA said the government has so far refused to accept the fundamental reality of pay erosion uh, and also refused to engage with any proposals the BMA has put forward about how pay restoration could be achieved, which suggests you know, the government's not really engaging with that reason behind the action. A bit more positive news from Scotland. Junior doctors have received a new pay offer, which... Um, the BMA has now put it to members to vote on 6.5% for this year, further 3% on top of what they get last year, which is a 14.5% increase over the two years. They've also agreed to a, a set up a task force to look at how pay restoration could be achieved. And the BMA has basically said if that doesn't come up with any decent solutions by September, they've still got industrial action potentially in the back pocket because it falls under the period of the mandate. So, I mean, a bit of a cautionary tale there about what could happen with for GPs if they do go down that road. Nick, just going back to the LMC's conference, you watched emotions about the salary GP model contract, didn't you, which also talked about pay restorations. And during that main debate that I was watching, some people got up and said they were really unhappy about that salary GP motion not being carried. What actually happened with that? 
So there were several elements of the motion debated uh, at the conference on this, which is often the way, and um, parts of it were voted through by LMCs and parts of it were not. The parts that LMCs did vote in favour of were strengthening the BMA model contract for salaried GPs and building in improved advised rates of pay. Uh, and they also voted to set up mechanisms to renegotiate the model contract rapidly and to reinstate an ongoing review process for it. But what upset some LMC representatives was the two elements of the motion that the conference voted against. And so one of those was a call for salary rates in the model contract to be increased to reflect pay restoration, so to reverse real terms drops in pay over the past you know, decade or so that have eroded pay for staff in lots of NHS roles, not just in, in general practice. And the other was a call for the salary GP contract, the model contract to factor in BMA safe working advice. And that advice is that GPs should have no more than 25 patient contacts per day. I think it's reasonable to say that there was a lot of support for the general principle on both of those points kind of across the board at the conference. I mean, I don't think anybody thinks really that GPs shouldn't have support to work at a safe limit or that their pay shouldn't be restored, or at least certainly I would I would say there was majority support for both of those points. But GPs said that they supported the safe working limit and the idea that pay should be restored across the profession. But ultimately, LMCs felt these changes couldn't go ahead to the salary GP model contract on its own in isolation. They pointed out that unless there was a guarantee of extra core funding for practices, they'd be unable to afford a huge rise in salary GP pay. So if you talked about, you know, restoring real terms pay erosion over a decade, unless practices receive the core funding increase necessary to deliver that, then building pay restoration into the contracts of salary GPs would simply add an extra unfunded cost to practices that would effectively have to come out of partners pay or force other cuts to services within practices, the other cuts that, you know, to services that practices provide. And the point they made on the safe consultation limit ultimately was similar. Um, you know, unless that limit is built into practice contracts, then building it into the contracts of some members of the practice team could create difficulties in terms of distribution of work between GPs. So I think the sense is really that, you know, is, is not so much that LMCs as a whole didn't support the concept of building in safe working and building in pay restoration to general practice and securing that for the profession as a whole, they felt that if you did it just on the salaried model contract without a guarantee that it was also going to come alongside change in, in the way that practice workload is contracted and funded, then you know, you're creating potentially a, a big problem for practices without any sign of the solution coming down the road to support those changes. One of the other things that was interesting, which I mentioned at the start of the podcast, was this debate about specialty and associate specialist or SAS doctors and whether they should have a role in general practice. We've spoken about this on the podcast before, and this is this idea that's been put forward by the GMC to help boost the workforce in general practice. Nick, we know that the BMA's GP committee feels this idea of SAS doctors working in primary care basically isn't a good idea. What was the feeling from delegates at the UK LMC's conference? Yeah, so as you mentioned, the, the BMA's GP committee is not in favour of allowing specialty and associate specialist doctors, SAS doctors, to come into the um, general practice workforce. 
they published a draft position paper ahead of the LMC's conference that raised concerns on a number of points around this. I mean, overall, they felt it wasn't viable for SAS doctors to work in general practice because there was a risk of creating a two-tier service. There's a risk that it could add to GP workload because they'd have to supervise these doctors very closely. And they also raised a point about a lack of clarity over actually how they'd be used. I mean, would they carry out secondary care work in community settings or would they actually see undifferentiated patients and, you know, therefore take on part of GP's current workload? If the idea is the latter, the BMA thinks it might not be cost effective because some other types of health professionals, such as nurse practitioners, are cheaper to employ potentially and are actually trained in dealing with undifferentiated patients in a way that SAS doctors are not. Um, And if the idea is the former, delivering secondary care in community settings, one point that came up at the LMC's conference very strongly was that this basically has nothing to do with general practice. If it's hospital work being delivered in local areas, practices don't have room to host that work, and it should really be hospitals that organise it, was the sentiment that came from LMCs. There was some debate at the LMC's conference around the nuances of of how this could work and, and what it all might mean. For me, it felt very much as if there was a clear consensus in the room against letting SAS doctors come into general practice, given this is so strongly supported by the GMC. The GMC has said that, you know, if you don't let SAS doctors come in to general practice or into the primary care workforce, you risk killing general practice, I think it's said. And given the fact that NHS England, according to the RCGP, is already looking at ways to trial this, this is an area where a, a clash really looks to be brewing between general practice and, uh, and NHS England and the GMC and so on. They did mention, didn't they, in the the access recovery plan, which we spoke about on the last news podcast, that the SAS doctors is likely, it sounded like from that, it was likely to be in the the NHS workforce plan, some idea around these SAS doctors moving into primary care. But it sounds like there wasn't much appetite for that from LMC representatives. You can read the full coverage of all the key debates on gponline.com. But one of the one that's perhaps worth mentioning was a debate around GP training and the idea of an MOD sponsorship scheme that would effectively write off a certain point portion of student debt, tuition fees and exam fees in exchange for GP trainees promising a fixed term of service after they qualified. So this was also voted through by delegates who seemed to think it was a good idea. Whether the government would go for such a scheme, who knows? But what's interesting about this is that this idea was as much about retaining doctors as it was about recruitment, i.e. you know, getting more people to choose general practice as a career. We know that more people are choosing general practice as a specialty and that training places have expanded in recent years, but that hasn't really translated into more GPs. Obviously, I think we'll see over the next couple of years whether those increased training places do lead to more GPs. But what we know now is that the fully qualified GP workforce is falling. And we talk a lot on the podcast about GPs leaving the profession later on in their careers and the importance of redressing retention there. But I think there's a very real worry, which is less acknowledged, that we're losing a lot of GPs early on in their career as well, which sort of came out in this debate. If you remember at the UK LMC's conference last year, the then chair of the GP trainee subcommittee presented the results of a survey of trainees that suggested 13% of GP trainees did not intend to work in general practice after qualifying. And I, I doubt those figures would have changed much in the past year. We know from the junior doctor strikes and the BMA's push for full pay restoration, 
that young doctors, including GPs, can earn much more and often have significantly better working conditions in other countries. So I think it is really important that any retention strategies that we do implement and that will hopefully form an important part of the upcoming NHS workforce plan do look at addressing retention at all stages of a GP's career, including right at the very start. Last week, the RCGP published results of a survey that laid bare the poor state of GP premises. Nick, you wrote about this. What did the survey have to say about the state of premises? The main finding from the RCGP survey was that four in 10 GPs work in practice premises that are unfit for purpose. And some GPs said there were constant water leaks in their premises. They reported problems like mould or having to block drafty windows with tape. Part of this is about crumbling buildings, buildings that are in a terrible state of repair. There were also problems with a shortage of consultation rooms, rooms that are too small, in some cases a third of the recommended size, and a lack of space to accommodate growing numbers of trainees or allied health professionals coming to work in general practice. And there are also problems with other infrastructure issues. Nearly half of GPs said they were forced to use computer software that's not fit for purpose. More than a third reported that their broadband connection is inadequate. More than half said Poor IT infrastructure was undermining communication and data exchange with other NHS services like pharmacies. And the impact of this is not hard to imagine. GPs said these poor premises are undermining the standard of care they can deliver and adding to delays for patients in terms of access to care at a time when demand is really high. Three in four respondents to the college poll also said that requests for funding to upgrade premises in the past decade had been rejected. Practices have been trying to appeal for support to improve these premises and address some of the problems that this survey picked out. But according to this survey, that support has not been forthcoming. Premises and the primary care estate, we've both written so many stories about this over the years and there seems to be nothing that's been done really to improve it. And, you know, it's very hard to see how things are going to get better without the buildings, the infrastructure, including the IT that practices need. I mean, there's all these new staff in general practice now, more trainees than ever before, all these ARRS staff, but there's nowhere to put people. Going back to the LMC's conference, I listened to a motion last week and, and this issue was mentioned a couple of times by delegates and it just sounds like a total headache for practices. One GP was saying that they have to have one or two members of their team every day that have to work at home because there's nowhere to put them. And that just sounds like a nightmare in terms of rotors and things like that. And we know the upcoming workforce plan is likely to include plans for an expansion of GP trainees. But where on earth are all these people going to go? I mean, I think you could say as well, I mean, we, we've just talked about the uh, the idea of SAS doctors coming in oh, exactly. as well. So there's another further pressure potentially coming down the road. We just have time for our regular good news slot. And Nick, this is about a primary care transformation project with a PCN that's helped improve patient outcomes. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, a PCN in Lewis, East Sussex, the Foundry Healthcare Lewis PCN, has shown what looks like some real promise in terms of stabilising its GP workforce, delivering cost savings for the healthcare system as a whole, and benefits for patients from applying a, a kind of population health management approach. It's a fairly small PCN uh, with less than 30,000 patients based around what is now a single practice, but one that was created by a merger between three previous smaller practices. 
Uh, and they reckon, and this is this is based on some research that's been done for them. They they reckon that every one pound spent on the PCN creates a one pound fifty saving for the wider health system in terms of things like reduced hospital bed days, reduced A and E visits, reduced ambulance use, and reduced locum GP costs. And they say this has come from implementing basically five key interventions, which are focused on. Patient segmentation, which involves identifying patients in need of greater continuity of care so that that can be offered, offering some patients different styles of access to care, such as, uh, you know, access to video consultations, that type of thing. And then some work on estates and managing the merger between the practices. Another step was setting up an urgent treatment centre. Um, and then there's some work to establish uh, what they've called a continuing care team and implementation of a system of demand and capacity modelling. So all these things have been you know, part of what's driven this sort of cost saving and the benefits for patients that, that they've found. Yeah, it sounds really positive. We'll put a link to some more information about that project in the description for this episode. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks to Nick and thanks for listening. I'm back next week when I'm talking to Dr. Matt Harris and Dr. Cornelia Youngens about an innovative scheme that's been imported from Brazil and is now being used in a deprived area of London to help improve the health and well-being of residents. So join me then. In the meantime, don't forget you can access the latest news affecting general practice and a host of other resources on our website at gponline.com. 